Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, first, I want to acknowledge everybody's work that you've been putting in here these last this last week, really. And I really appreciate it, especially in heat like this. Um, it's not easy. And it's wonderful to get to this part of the retreat for, for me, and uh, I suspect for Guy and Sylvia. As you see people during the day, especially people who haven't done it before, and the first few days a whole lot of questioning of what's the point of this and slowly but surely many if not all faces just start to open up and see that there's a really a point to this <laughs> and it's just great to see the practice really works I mean I know it works for me and I know it's worked for Every retreat that I've taught up till this point, that there's always, you know, the question in the mind the first few days. Um, not really a question, but it's just wonderful to see that there's a fruition to all of this. And it's, I've really been uh, inspired and, and touched by people's process and getting to know you. But the thought might have come to you, and it certainly came to me um, in my earlier years of practice, uh, isn't there an easier path? <laughs> Where's the fun? Where's the, the richness? Where's the yummy goodies that you think of in spiritual bliss? Uh, and I want to share just a little bit first in my own process of wrestling with that question uh, and then apply some or explore some fundamental principles of uh, this path and, um, and all paths. Uh, some of you, but most of you I, don't, I didn't know before this retreat, some of you know that before I came to these teachings I, um, I was very inspired by the path of devotion the bhakti path, as it's called. I was raised in the Jewish tradition um, and was hungry for some greater spiritual practices, although I, I really value the heritage, um, but it, it didn't quite satisfy what I was looking for. Um, and then when I came across Be Here Now, um, as many people did in the early 70s, 70, 71, I saw that there was, there was something that, um, that might answer what I was looking for. And I was very inspired by Neem Karoli Baba, the guru in that book, Ma, uh, Maharaji, as he's referred to. And um, my life really started a dramatic change at that point and for a few years I carried around Be Here Now like a Bible um, and I, I, it's really in here and in here. Then I um, encountered this practice in the summer of 74 at Naropa Institute when Ramdas was part of this big summer program and he directed me I, had, I asked him, among other things, about meditation, and he said, check out this guy Goldstein. And, um, and then things really took another major leap. And this was a practice that I, that I just took to. I really saw, for the first time, the, the possibility for me to not be completely at the mercy of my neurotic patterns and that was an amazing gift so I practiced with great fervor out of gratitude for 
the little that I started to see and also for the, for the inspiration that I, I found in the teachings. But um, it was at times, especially after leaving that supportive environment, going back to my home in New York, in my apartment in New York, and where I'd kind of hibernate for the winter along with a lot of other people in New York hibernating in their apartments, I was hungry for the, the heart quality of the devotional practice that I had, I had missed. Um, and although I had a daily practice and did a lot of retreats, um, I still was, was yearning back for that rich heart quality. Uh, and then, as it turned out, there was a, a class in New York that Ramdas was was leading for a small group of people, and um, actually Joseph told me about the, the class, Joseph Goldstein, and I went to see if if it was appropriate for me to take the class, and had an interview with Ramdas, and went to the class, and uh, that first class actually there was there was one other person who was uh, deep into Buddhist practice, and it was a very fierce teachings uh, at the time. Ramdas, at one point, having this really intense dialogue with this person, he turned to me and he said, he's the only friend you have in this room. And then he kicked him out. <laughs> very fierce. So I took a gulp. What am I in for? And I spent the next ten months or a year uh, in that scene wondering what I was, a bhakta, devotional practitioner, or a Buddhist. Bhakti, Buddhist, devotion. And I would see the, the shortcomings of each one very easily. You know, the, the devotional path, we chant Sri Ram, Jai Ram, and do all of these kind of love and light things, and it seemed kind of sloppy to me. You know? <laughs> yeah, just, I like to the precision of just seeing things as they are. And then I think about my Buddha Dharma practice, and it seemed kind of dry. So I would go back and forth, and Ram Das would continually remind me, don't worry about picking a path. Let your path pick you. And finally, after about 10 months in this um, community, one day it dawned on me, instead of looking at the differences, there was a place that they both came together. As Maharaji's, one of his main instructions is Love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. And there's a, a beautiful set of, of, uh, of tapes called Love, Serve, Remember with these teachings. And in the Buddhist depiction of practice, what we're supposed to cultivate is a heart of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And those three came together, I thought, love everyone, non-hatred. That's what non-hatred means, loving-kindness. Serve everyone, which is really the heart of generosity and service. Remember God, which is another way of saying non-delusion. See the story beyond yourself. Remember, open up to the vast perspective of reality. And that felt comforting. I'd like to talk about these three, and whether it's from Hindu or Buddhist or Christian or Jewish or whatever tradition, um, they're all packages for the truth. The truth is the truth. It's just that in Buddhist language, they don't put things very positively. You know? The Buddha said he didn't want to be pinned down to anything. So he said, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. What you have left 
is where it's at. Because anything that you can point to and define is just a place to land. But we can say those qualities more positively. Service or generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. The instructions today that Guy gave, the extra credit assignment, noticing the feeling tone is really the, the doorway to the cultivation of these three. As he said, in each moment there is a flavor to experience, either pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral. That pretty much covers the territory now. And when we respond out of our usual conditioning, we are reacting in confusion. And when there's a pleasant moment, typically our minds want to hold on to them and grasp. This is called attachment or greed. When there's an unpleasant moment, typically our hearts or our minds want to push away, move away from it. This is called either aversion or, on the extreme, hatred, that moving away, recoiling. And when there is a neutral moment, usually we space out on things and we don't see clearly. That usually often leads to one of um, aversion because boredom is a, lot, is a hard one to stay with. And so we try to look for something a bit more entertaining. That's the same thing as ignorance in the Buddhist terminology or delusion. When we react with those responses on a karmic level, if you, somebody had asked to talk a little bit about karma, if you want to just get a very simplistic um, aspect of karma, you are sowing the seeds for unhappiness. Now, just before we go, go further into this, I want to say that the Buddha warned about thinking too much about karma. It's one of the four imponderables that if you think about, you'll go crazy. Okay? How this is connected to this, this is connected to this. Now, I know people are going to be saying, what's the other three? You know, so they usually come up. So I'll just say right now how it all started. You'll go crazy if you try to figure it out. The range of a mind in deep absorption in the, the highest samadhi and the range of a Buddha mind. Those are things that are hard to comprehend uh, with our analytical mind. So anyway, if you respond with those uh, grasping, aversion, and uh, deluded responses, you are planting the seeds for unwholesome results. And in this moment, you're also having an unsatisfactory and unpleasant experience in the moment of grasping, aversion, and confusion. If you can apply some presence, some mindfulness, to that moment, you have another choice. And in fact, you will be sowing the seeds for just the opposite, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. I'd like to go through each of them non-greed, or really the ability to let go, to not grasp on to the pleasant. As you sit here and you've had a, a pleasant, delightful experience, what does your mind do with it? Ah, that was a great meditation. Now I finally got it. Do you come into the hall the next time willing for anything to happen, or is there a slight hope that you'll recapture that. And you can see it here in the meditation. It's just a microcosm for how our minds and our hearts operate out in the world. Notice what you do when things are really sweet. We hold on. 
if you're quite present, you can notice the pleasantness of the experience and not need to grasp on. Because you see, this is painful. And in that openness, there's a, an ability to connect and then allow for things to change. Actually, in the grasping, you have cut yourself off from really enjoying completely because you're too busy holding on. As a, uh, an illustration of this, um, a number of years ago, down at Yucca Valley in Southern California, um, where we go each April, and I usually bring my family with me. My son Adam, who's now eight, uh, was uh, about three at the time. And uh, he was in the staff room, we were all in the staff room, and there was this big bowl of strawberries. And he loved strawberries, still does love strawberries. And there he was, just, you know, like a kid in a candy store, so to speak, and just reaching. And I wanted to see if he could eat the one that was in his mouth before he put the next one in, just to see what it would be like to eat mindfully, <laughs> naively. And there he was, you know, uh, he was so frustrated. He wanted that bowl more and more. And there was this one moment, the picture is indelible in my mind, with a strawberry on his tongue, in his mouth, yelling, strawberry! <laughs> That's what we do. Isn't it? It's funny thinking it, and you see a little kid do it. That's what we do. More, more, and we can't appreciate what's here now. That's what the wanting mind does. A little exercise that I like to share with people these days. Just imagine in your hand something very precious. In fact, put your finger in your hand and just imagine it is the most precious thing in the world. And now, close your hand on it. And just imagine you might lose it if you don't hold it tightly. So hold it tightly and squeeze. You might lose it. Squeeze a little bit harder. Hold it tightly, tightly. Now just let go for a moment. You feel the difference? That letting go is actually a relief. And that holding on is quite painful. And guess what? You can't hold on to it anyway because it's out of our control as all things pass. Letting go. This is, um, this is from Ajahn Chah. He says, Ajahn Chah was uh, Jack Kornfield's main teacher, Ajahn Sumedho's main teacher. And, uh, Guy had mentioned him last night. He says, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect any praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. That takes a lot of trust and faith, doesn't it? But the more you practice it, the more you see for yourself how painful it is to hold on, little by little, there's the capacity to let go of the pleasant as it fleets by. And it's really in that opening that the heart can get released. Generosity. It is the first of the teachings that the Buddha would give to um, to lay people, one of ten perfections, paramitas, is generosity and, and virtue and patience and a number of other ones. He started with generosity 
because it is the both the understanding of the interconnectedness that we share and it is a practice that we can do that allows us to start letting go. That feels good actually when we practice it. And he said that if you knew the power of generosity you wouldn't go through a meal without sharing it. Because the karmic result of generosity is, guess what? Abundance. How are you? Think of how you are around somebody who's very generous. Can you think of somebody in your life who just um, exudes generosity? How do you feel around them? You want to probably be generous back. It's very different than being around somebody who is kind of insecure with their possessions or their, their energy. And it also feels good in the moment. Now the trick here is you can't be generous in order for abundance to happen. It's not the way it works. It's a spontaneous act, the joy of giving, the joy of service. What is it uh, Schweitzer saying? Those who know, uh, who know the joy of, the true joy know the, is the joy of service. Something like that. It feels good to share. But we have this scarcity mentality that, oh, if I give away, then I won't have enough. But really, what we can give, what we do give with our resources or our energy or our presence is very filling, and it's the currency of our caring. All of this is just stuff in the world when you get down to it. And I'll, I'll share another story that really drove this home. Uh, this was a number of years ago on one of the three-month courses that happen each, each fall in Massachusetts. This is, in 1979, did this course. And I was the pot washer after lunch, where they assigned pot washing because they didn't wait for volunteers. Right? And my, my hat is off uh, to all the pot washers in this retreat. And there I was, kind of feeling sorry for myself, washing all these pots, 110 people served at lunch, and kind of going through it and worried about not getting to the next sitting on time. And out of the staff room came the manager of the, the retreat center uh, with something in his hand. And he looked at me doing my work diligently, and he said, here, this is for you. And I got really excited, did my pots quickly, and then finally dried my hands and opened up this something of piece of something in tin foil, right, aluminum foil, and I opened it up and it was this big piece of cheesecake, like <laughs> glazed with nuts and all. And by this time in the retreat, about two months into the retreat, <laughs> An extra slice of bread at tea time was a big deal for me. And it was a lot more austere than, than, these, um, than what you're fed here. So I closed it. I opened it. It was still there. <laughs> and uh, as, you're, as you're practicing, there's a quality of generosity that just starts to come. And besides, it was a big piece, right? So what I did was I broke off the piece into a few different sections. And I put three different pieces in different people's bowls, and I had a piece for myself. You know, there, at that time, people had their own place for their bowls in, in the retreat center. And you get to know whose bowl is where. There's not much else to do on the <laughs> retreat, right? And there's some connections that you feel with people, even in the silence. So I wanted to wait until tea time to see people come in and, and look at their bowl. Um, and sure enough, each person, you know, their mouth dropped. Wow. <laughs> and one person broke her piece off and put it in, some, uh, in somebody else's bowl, who happened to be Howie Cohn, who's one of our friends and teachers. I ate my piece of cheesecake very mindfully, I can assure you. It was delicious. It lasted for about... 60, maybe 90 seconds. 
But what's interesting and why I share this story is that 16 years later, I feel a connection with five other people through one piece of cheesecake. Isn't that interesting? That's what this stuff is about. We can all share, and it feels good. Now, that's not to say you should give away all your stuff and be a martyr. You also want to be generous and, and kind with yourself. But when that impulse comes, it's a wonderful impulse to act on, and it can be practiced. In the world, it can be practiced. And the Buddha said there are different levels of generosity. You might deliberate a lot and then finally say, okay, I'll give. Even if you're at that, uh, that level where you have to deliberate a lot, act on it. That's fine. You can practice just seeing what it feels like. Very rarely do you give and later say, oh, I shouldn't have given. It's gone. And that quality of non-greed, of letting go, of generosity, also expresses itself out in the world in terms of service. It feels good to give with our energy and our being and to share. It's really a fulfilling quality. On the retreat, every moment that you can let go of the pleasant, you are developing that ability. Non-greed. The next one. Non-hatred, or more positively put, loving-kindness, or love. What this means in terms of the practice, non-hatred or non-aversion, is our ability to accept, to open to, to embrace this moment, even if it's an unpleasant one. Guy talked a lot about it last night. Having a friendliness that can meet the moment without running away. Have you noticed what happens when you run away from an unpleasant experience? It seems to be able to, ch- to follow you, to chase you wherever you are. Trying to get something out of your mind. Oh no, not that. I don't want to think about that. Or trying to somehow bargain or battle some kind of sensation in your body. The paradox is, as soon as you accept it and say, okay, not just even a resignation, but fully give it permission to be here. Okay, what can I wake up to in this? And I would go one further and say a kind of willingness to explore and and investigate. When you do that, you're no longer in battle. Mindfulness itself has a compassionate element to it. It is a kind awareness to the moment. It's not a kind of sterile rejection or resignation, I should say, of what's happening. In the unpleasant moment, if you don't have a kindness underneath it, there's some subtle aversion there, usually. And this quality of non-hatred or non-aversion or friendliness, kindness, can be cultivated. It's cultivated in each moment of mindfulness. It's also cultivated in our lives in other ways. Uh, The metta practice, the loving-kindness practice, is a systematic way to very um, directly cultivate that open heart. Uh, By the way, there's a wonderful book by Sharon Salzberg called uh, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness, about the loving-kindness practice. It can be practiced just like anything else. The Buddha said that we're, we're just creatures of habit. If you practice anger, you'll get really good at it. If you practice fear, because you don't realize there's another way, that becomes the way you relate to the world. If you practice kindness, it becomes more and more how you respond to life. If you practice mindfulness, 
that becomes more and more the way you can relate to life. Well, the loving kindness can be developed. And also, it's clear to me that through this practice, even without the formal metta practice, the heart starts to open. And I said earlier that, that it seemed that this path was kind of dry and I wanted the, the lush richness of, of, uh, of the bhakti path. And as it has turned out, my deepest heart openings by far in my life have come through this practice. It's a very mysterious thing how it works. But as you just keep on putting in your intention to be here and you start to wake up, there's a certain awe that opens you up tremendously. Uh, And there's all sorts of heart openings and connections that you start to feel with life. There are different levels uh, I just want to mention uh, on this loving-kindness. One level that we operate in, or perhaps many are familiar with in our daily life, is the interpersonal level of love. The word love is such a loaded word and so overused, and it's something that we all want. What is it anyway? A lot of times we think of love in terms of interpersonal relationships as a kind of um, comfortable agreement. I'll be here for you if you'll be here for me. We're in this together. Or you can fall in love and be deeply connected. In the Buddhist teachings, some of these wholesome qualities have what are called near enemies that look like wholesome qualities, but are actually very different. And the near enemy of love, of loving-kindness, is attachment. It looks like love, but it's very different because there's a contraction to it. There's a kind of fear that maybe you'll lose the beloved. And there's also a giving up of your own your own source of love, thinking that it's out there often. But true loving-kindness is an expansive quality that's not trying to possess, not trying to acquire, but it's an outflow of the heart. And there can be, as probably most of us in this room know, a deep, genuine heart connection where the person who we are in relationship allows us to feel that love naturally. And that feeling, when we feel love so deeply, we can embrace the whole world at times. We love the world. It's wonderful. It's just another very mysterious gift that we're given here, that we can actually touch each other that way to open up our love faucet, so to speak. But it's still dependent on somebody outside of ourselves. So there's another level of, of love that I want to talk about. And that happens on a spiritual level. What I call loving the Dharma. Or loving God if you're in certain other religious traditions. You know, you hear about all these people who are born again, who see things in a whole different way when they, when they surrender their love to God. And in the Buddhist tradition, that is not talked about a whole lot. Certainly, loving God isn't talked about because the clo- closest corollary to, to God is uh, Dharma. I'll share an experience that, that I had that got me in touch with this quality in this path. When I went for that class with Ramdas, we had a, a discussion first, private discussion, to see if it was appropriate that I was there. And he said, um, well, you know, this is a devotional practice. Um, how do you feel about God? And I said, well, you know, I was raised Jewish, 
and I had this idea in my mind that God is this big, all-powerful, kind of stern man with a beard and a book and a pen <laughs> saying, you're going to have a good day and you're going to have a lousy day. And it wasn't very inspiring to me. So I don't quite relate to it. He said, well, how do you feel about Jesus or Krishna? Or I said, I said, the closest thing I can think of is the Dharma, which to me is the truth, the, in my concept, the perfection of all things, the natural unfolding, the mystery is usually what I call it these days. Just how it all hangs together, there's something quite incomprehensible but has a natural order to things, but not defined with, within the context of a being. And so he said, well, do you love the Dharma? And I thought for a moment, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I really do. He said, you're sure? I said, absolutely. It's the most important thing in my life. And then he said, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? <laughs> I said, no. Yeah. So he said, well, go ahead and try. I'll do it with you. I'd say, I love you, Dharma. I'll say it with you. I felt kind of dumb. And I said, okay, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And he repeated, I love you, Dharma. And we said that a few times until one time I just really felt it. I love you, Dharma. And at that point, tears started coming down, and I really felt it. And he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. You know? <laughs> and I ended up doing the class. And it's something that all of us, all of us have. Now, why else would you put yourself through something like this? Something has called you. You've heard some kind of call whether it's because you love the truth or you want to really understand or something has inspired you to look outside of yourself and your small story for the deepest kind of meaning, for that sense of connection. And it's something I think that we should all really honor and get in touch with on a regular basis, how much we love the Dharma, how much we love the truth. But still, even in that loving the Dharma, there is something of a dualistic quality to that relationship. Even if the Dharma isn't a person, there's me and there's the Dharma that I love, whatever that concept is in my mind. And there is a deeper kind of love than that. And that is the love which the practice can make available and which we can open up to in other ways besides straight Vipassana meditation that comes out of no separation between ourselves and the rest of life, where there's no barriers between me and everything else, I and thou, it disappears. That's sometimes referred to as emptiness, which is a strange kind of word because emptiness seems to imply a kind of vacuum where there's, you're just going to be sucked up into some kind of void. And it, was, it can be a scary word for some people, emptiness. But really, emptiness refers to the empty, emptiness of a separate self. There is nothing here that is separate from everything else. No barriers, nothing separate. And sometimes you can feel it. I'm sure everybody here has gotten glimpses of it at times. Being out in nature is a wonderful way to feel it, where sometimes you just might take a deep breath on a beautiful day, and you just feel life coming through you and say, wow. It's not even a saying, wow, it's just, ah. 
this exclamation of connection. Many glimpses of emptiness. We can feel that way with another where it's not me loving another, but a, a deep merging. I'd like to share a, a passage from Thich Nhat Hanh that uh, he beautifully illustrates this. Thich Nhat Hanh says, 15 years ago, I helped a committee for orphans who were victims of the war in Vietnam. From Vietnam, the social workers sent out applications, one sheet of paper with a small, child of, a small picture of a child in the corner, telling the name, age, and conditions of the orphan. My job was to translate the application from Vietnamese into French in order to seek a sponsor so that the child would have food to eat and books for school and be put into the family of an aunt, an uncle, or a grandparent. Then the committee in France could send the money to the family member to help take care of the child. Each day, I helped translate about 30 applications. The way I did it was to look at the picture of the child. I did not read the application. I just took time to look at the picture of the child. Usually, after only 30 or 40 seconds, I became one with the child. Then I would pick up the pen and translate the words from the application onto another sheet. Afterwards, I realized that it was not me who had translated the application. It was the child and me who had become one. Looking at his or her face, I felt inspired, and I became the child, and he or she became me, and together we did the translation. It is very natural. You don't have to practice a lot of meditation to be able to do that. Do you ever do that just somehow, not in a lovey, gushy way, just look into somebody's eyes and see yourself in there and see that life was looking at itself through these two beings? This is what the Indian Hindu expression namaste is about. People greet each other namaste in, in Asia. I greet you in that place where the divine in me and the divine in you are one. In meditation practice, we can touch deeply this place of deep love that comes from emptiness, from no separation. Perhaps you've had just glimpses of it where it's not you doing the meditation, but the meditation doing you, coming through you, and there's not even a you around. And as I say, each moment that we bring mindfulness to our experience is a moment where we are opening up in a friendly, connected manner that leads to that quality of non-separation. So, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Or put more positively, remembering God. Remembering. What does that mean, non-delusion? Non-delusion or non-confusion simply means seeing clearly what's actually happening. What happens when you start to look at reality, what's really going on? One thing that you see that you've probably seen in these days is that you are not in control. You're not running the show. You might be the star of the show and have some input, but you can't control how it's turning out. Now, that can be a little bit scary. It can be discouraging. Or when you truly see, it can be the doorway to freedom. When you can let go of that illusion of control and just really see what's going on. In order to do that, 
you have to be with your experience without taking credit or blame for what's happening. This is what's called not identifying with your experience, not taking it to be mine or me. So when you have an unpleasant thought, instead of saying, oh no, look at my mind, or as we often might go in the world, oh, I hope nobody sees what a rotten person I am for that thought, it's just coming on all on its own. When you have a wonderful thought, the other side of the coin is not taking credit for that thought that passes through. Gee, I hope people see what a really noble, wonderful person I am for that thought that happened to pop up. That's what you're doing when you identify with it. They're all just coming through on their own, coming and going, coming and going. And when you see clearly, you see that there's, it's a misunderstanding to take credit or blame for those thoughts that come through. Or for the meditation experience that you have. If it's a, a lousy one or an unpleasant one, oh, I'm really a rotten meditator. No, that's a misunderstanding. If it's a wonderful one, oh, I'm really cool, I got this down. No, that's a misunderstanding. One retreat that I, I um, was on, this came through really graphically, where I, I was in this space where I was just really in a groove, and there was a lot of energy and, and a lot of presence, and I was sitting for long stretches at a time, number of hours on end. And it was, it was just, it was really terrific, right? And this one meditation period, somebody came down to the, to the sitting who was a very diligent yogi, uh, and who's, I really respected her tremendously. And she came down, and after about 20 minutes, there she was, kind of nodding, you know, just this classic case of the nods. And I had been sitting for quite a few hours to this point, and it it mystified me, you know, how is it, here I am, sitting like this, and here she is, just kind of dozing off, and I thought of all the hours, I said the other day, I know very well what it's like to be sleeping in a, an upright position on the, the cushion, all the hours, all the many times that that was me, and that that could be me the next day. and. In one moment, the whole room kind of did this strange thing where it was just energies around, and here there, there was some, some energy and concentration, and here was sleepiness, and here was restlessness, and here was calm, and here was just these bundles of energies that 24 hours later would be switched completely. You know, and to take credit for the state that I happened to find myself in was a complete absurdity. How could I take credit for this? I just fell into that space. It was a very wonderful moment to see there's no way that I need to take responsibility or blame for any kind of meditative state. When you truly are in touch with this non-delusion and not identifying, then you can let go of all your ideas about how it's supposed to be and open up, meet this moment fresh, as Krishnamurti called it, freedom from the known. When you let go of all your ideas and preconceptions and you meet this moment fresh, you start to see things clearly. And what you see, the heart of what you see and the heart of this non-delusion is what Guy talked about um, to a great extent last night, three characteristics or qualities of experience. The first is that everything changes, what's called anicca, impermanence. And he talked about that, and it, and it 
kind of can be unsettling to hear that. Oh my goodness, everything changes. And a few people came up and said, what does that mean in my life? Everything's going to change. You know, it's like, well, where do I hold on to? It can be quite unsettling. However, this is not bad news. On the one hand, it's just the way things are. And on the other, it doesn't imply or it doesn't mean that we only are subject to loss, but the corollary to that is everything changing means that there's an infinite creativity in the universe because there's always something new happening. doesn't mean that there's a vacuum and there you are, you know, dried up on a barren desert. There is always a new moment to greet. And this can be a source of real joy and excitement. As I said to somebody uh, yesterday, think of all the best friends in your life. The one from public school, elementary school, or the one from junior high or high school, the one from college, the one from young adulthood. How many best friends have you had in your life? Probably more than one. The thought of losing any best friend while you are with them would be probably very painful and unbearable. But you've had others, haven't you? Things change. There is a constant replenishing and a constant adventure in the unfolding. Anicca. In that Anicca, you see that there's nothing to hold on to, so you begin to let go. And this is, again, a doorway to freedom. Second characteristic, what Guy called dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, or, as you've probably seen, um, suffering. There's a lot of suffering in life. This is not a depressing or bad news, you know, bummer kind of a, a, a gospel. It's just the way things are that there is this quality of unsatisfactory in life because everything changes. And we are subject to that, that suffering and that loss. It's not the whole show. There's also lots of joy and love and beauty and things to delight in. But through suffering, we truly can understand compassion. When we open up to suffering, the truth of that quality of unsatisfactoriness, we see we can't hold on to anything. We see what loss is. And when we've been touched by it, we know what compassion is. And we can make that available to people in our, own, in our lives who are touched with loss. So suffering deepens compassion. And in fact, it's the doorway to freedom. That's why the Buddha talked about the first truth, suffering, and understanding suffering leads to the end of suffering. Because you're not running away from it in fear. And then the third characteristic of this non-delusion, or anatta, the quality of selflessness. What does that mean? You don't exist. That's kind of scary. When you go home, I wouldn't suggest when somebody asks, what did you learn, that you say, you don't exist. <laughs> On one level, that's not so. You do exist. You have a body and you have a mind. And you have a personality and a history. On another level, the deepest level, there is not anything solid in you that you can point to as being the essence of who you are. You are this process of life coming through you. That's what it means. There is not an inherent entity, an abiding entity, that you can point to as being you. You are a process. One simple way that I, I find helpful to point to this for people just imagine, instead of thinking of yourself as 
a being as a, as a noun. Instead of thinking of yourself as a noun, as a thing, just try for a moment thinking of yourself as a verb. You are a verb. That is, you are a field of activity that's coalesced, coalesced into this being. That is a process that we call James or Sylvia or Guy or me. And it is a continual flow of unfolding. So you don't lose anything by opening up to anatta. It's not like you disappear and just get sucked up. You actually, in that understanding of yourself as process, open up to something much vaster than this small container of who you are. And the, the gift of anatta is the understanding of interconnectedness that we all share. We can think of this room as life talking to itself through these beings. It's not separate, and you're not separate from this whole process of life. Uh, Brian Swim, this uh, wonderful writer who's a kind of Christian cosmologist and, and scientist, wrote this book, The Universe is a Green Dragon. It's a beautiful book. In it, he, he talks about all the stuff of the universe coming from the Big Bang, as they think, and that it's, we all came from the same beginning and then, and then came out and stars were formed and out of the stars came planets and out of the planets came us and all of life. He said, one way to think of yourself, you are a star's way of knowing itself. You are the material of star stuff that somehow has this amazing reflexive awareness that can reflect back on itself, you are a star's way of knowing itself. You're not separate from this mystery of life. So, non-delusion, seeing clearly, in every single moment that you're mindful, you are here without identifying with the experience. Oh, that's mine. That's who I am. But you see this natural process of life coming through you. In this process, in this Buddhist way of seeing things, this non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, it might seem dry, but there is the element of surrender. Surrender to the truth in this moment. Surrendering to the Dharma not to some being, but to the reality as it's given to you in this moment. There is a quality of devotion that very strongly develops a sense of awe of life. And the heart opens greatly. And the only thing that you have to bring or need to bring is a sincere intention to wake up. Your sincere wanting and hearing the call and putting in the time, this is what the secret ingredient is. Hearing the call is, whether you call it grace or good karma, that's one thing. And then acting and developing it is something else. When I was around the, uh, I was at a conference with the Dalai Lama um, last year. I was very fortunate to, to be part of this. And he was asked, how do you handle all the, the suffering to your people and to, uh, and to your country? And he said, my sincere motivation is my protection. And then the next day he was asked, how do you work with all the fear around you? And he said, my sincere motivation is my protection. This is, this is how I can hold the immensity of the, of the suffering and the pain and the fear. Your sincere motivation, that's what you can give to the process. And the Dharma responds with this quality of awakening.
So in each moment that we're mindful, we are cultivating non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, a quality of generosity, open-handedness, a quality of love, loving-kindness, and the quality of wisdom, clarity, seeing what's actually here. Don't underestimate any moment of mindfulness. You've been doing it for the last week, and it bears incredible fruits. So I hope you, you use this last part of the retreat wisely, not from a sense of squeezing it out, but just delighting and appreciating the gifts that you're giving yourself. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on December 1, 1995. It is an offering of... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.